0: But we are working in the prophecy or in the, with the prophet Isaiah and I would like for you to turn to the 44th chapter of Isaiah. And we are going to look at some verses of Scripture uh, in chapters 44 and 45 to kind of uh, nail down what I believe is the theme of the book of Isaiah. The theme of the book of Isaiah is like a two-sided coin, On one side, one side is this, what kind of God is He? And the other side of the coin is, what is doing the will of God like? Now if you study the um, prophecy, the prophet Isaiah, and the book of Isaiah, I think you'd see those two themes as they begin to, uh, are woven uh, throughout the Scripture. What kind of God is this? And what is doing His will like? What does it look like? A little boy was um, saying his uh, evening prayer, his goodnight prayer, and he prayed like this. He said, God, if you're supposed to help me be good, you're not doing a good job of it. You're not helping much. I think it might have been what, how Israel must have felt as they floundered in, in Babylonian captivity. That if God, if you're supposed to help us you're not doing a good job of it. You're not coming to rescue us. And I think the conclusion was, was being developed in the mind of the, the, the uh, exiles is that God has certainly failed them. I suppose that, that each of us has at some time um, come to a conclusion that God is uh, not doing His job. Um, I, I was somebody gave me a couple of weeks ago a little article about what we expect God to do. You know, win football games and and uh, and you know keep us from wrecks. And they were talking about I don't know why I'm thought of this, but that this this particular church they had a uh, a, a Christian uh, diet group. And uh, so you came on once a week, fat folks did. <laughs> I would be a prime candidate. And, and weigh in and, and read scriptures on dieting and ask God to help you lose weight. And, and the, and the uh, little article said, Is that now God is in charge of fat farms? I mean, you know, what do we expect Him to do? And and so out in Babylonian captivity there was this cry for help and and it seemed like God wasn't doing his job. And Isaiah's prophecy is a is a prophecy that seeks to establish the conclusion that God never fails and that his purpose of redemption has been and will be accomplished. Uh, When God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, Moses, he told Moses to go back to to Egypt and and bring his people out. And he said, well, now, when I go back and I confront Pharaoh, whom shall I say sent me? And God said, just tell them I am sent you. Now, that name he chose for himself is a dynamic name, not static. And what God was saying is this, I am what I am, I am who I am. And the symbolism of that powerful, that powerful dynamic name was this, you go back and tell Pharaoh that the God who is adequate for any need that arises, sufficient for any need, you go back and tell Pharaoh that the adequate God has said, you come and bring my people out. Now. This same God has not changed and He's the God of the exile. And so back in, out there in Babylon Isaiah is reminding those people that this God has not and will not fail. He is totally adequate for every need you have. And so he comes in these chapters that I want us to study tonight, look at this, because what we, in answer to the theme, what is this God is like, what is this God like, is chapters 44 and 45 to establish the deep conviction that he is adequate. Whatever else you say about him, he is adequate. Now, um uh, if there's any um, need, you know, any uh, doubt about that, I want you to follow along with me in Isaiah 44 and 45. Now, this, this, uh, these two chapters divide into four sections. The first section has to do with the instruction, and God gives some instruction, and the instruction is this: I just want you to remember, and there are three things I want you to remember," said. I want you to remember first of all the cons- your constitution as a nation, how you were constituted. So, I want us to read together verse 21 of chapter 44. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. I want us to stop there because that is the, that's the phrase that establishes their the background of their constitution as a nation. And he uses a double name, now watch this. Now everybody knows something about Jacob and what we know about Jacob is that he is a deceiver and a defrauder. His very name means a schemer. And, and somebody said that Jacob was so crooked he could sleep on a corkscrew and be comfortable. I mean the guy was absolutely a deceiver and a defrauder. And so this nation of Israel was a nation that came to be From the loins of a a deceitful and defrauding man, and then he uses the other name for Jacob, which was the name Israel. And you know how he got that name. This deceiver, this defrauder, one night on on the way, running away from his brother, whom he had cheated out of his blessing, he encountered God in that lonely place where he encountered him. And in uh, that encounter he wrestled with God. You remember the story? And early in the morning God gave him a new name. He said, I'm going to call you Israel. Now I want you to watch the connection here. What he is saying is that this nation is a nation that was formed not because of their value or worth. They were not of value or worth. They were like Jacob the deceiver. They were not chosen because of their merit. For this nation had come to be because and only because of the grace of God. And God in His grace chose a nation that was undeserving of being chosen and He gave this nation a name that was on the basis of the covenant promise He made with Jacob in that encounter. And so God is saying, I'm going to fulfill my purpose for after all you are what you are because of what I made you and you are a nation because I have chosen you not because you deserved it and what you are is because of my grace and I made a promise with you in and in a, a covenant with you and I'll fulfill that co- promise and that covenant. Now what has to happen sometimes is that we have to go back and remember the rock from whence we were hewn And the roots from which we came. And and understand this that that if God has saved us at the time when we were the least deserving of that, and God shows us when we had no value to Him at all, we were in our sin and rebellion and lawlessness and God was adequate for our need at that point in time, is there any need for which He would not be adequate? In fact, the Apostle Paul says, if God in His mercy could save you, then there is nothing that God could not do for you. Totally adequate. Remember the con- your constitution as a nation and then he says, I want you to remember, same verse, your calling. He said, for you are my servant. Now the purpose of God's election of Israel was not that Israel be a you know, favored nation. He chose Israel to be a people of service. Now what Israel did is she, she forgot her calling. And Israel wanted to be blessed. She didn't want to bless Israel wanted to be comforted, not to comfort others. Israel wanted to be served. Israel didn't want to serve, Mr. Calling. Now, let me me give you some shocking news. Do you know why you were saved? Shocking news. You were not saved so that you could go to heaven. If you were saved so you could go to heaven, you would have died as soon as you got saved. God didn't save you so you go to Heaven. Shocking news. God didn't save you because He wanted to give you Heaven. That's, That's just the icing on the cake. You know why God saved you? Because He wanted a people through whom He could spread the Gospel to the unbelieving world. Now some of you miss your calling because God has called us and saved us just for one purpose, and that is is that we would be a people to glorify Him and to share the gospel with those who have never heard Him. And we have Americanized that word. Now to us, a word, the word servant, we, we, we conjure up in our mind like a waiter or a waitress comes by and picks up the tip. But a servant in, in the biblical sense was a person who was completely at the disposal of the Master. Totally at the disposal of the Master. Had no choice as to when they got up, when they went to bed, even marriage or children. Completely at the disposal of the Master. Now God said, I have chosen you and called you a nation that is not a nation. And I have chosen you for this purpose. You be my servant. He wants us to remember that. Third. He wants them to remember their comfort. And he he has four affirmations in this verses 21b and 22. He says, I farmed you. You will not be forgotten. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud. Last part of verse 22 for I have redeemed you. Now, Here's the affirmations of, his, of the comfort of Israel. He blessed them by farming them, never forgetting them, swept away their transgressors, and redeemed them. An invitation to remember. Second is the instrument. Now I want you to notice something tremendously significant. Verse 28 of, of chapter 44. He said, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desires and he declares of Jerusalem she will be built and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Now look over to chapter 45 verse 1, thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed. And look at verse four, for the sake of Jacob my servant and Israel my chosen one I have called you by your name. Now the you there, the pronoun is a reference back to Cyrus. I have called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor though you have not known me. The most astounding, passage of scripture in all the book of Isaiah for God is saying that Cyrus will be the instrument that God will use to accomplish Israel's redemption now let me tell you about uh, let me tell you a little bit about Cyrus now the the background of, of this passage is in um, Has to do with the Babylonian captivity and the Jews have been carried off into captivity in Babylon. And the Babylonians are the conquering power over the Jews. But there is an empire that is rising to power, it is the Medo-Persian Empire, Medo-Persian Empire. And the king of that empire is a man named Cyrus. And the middle Persians conquered the Babylonians and now the conquering power or kingdom over, over Israel was Cyrus and the middle Persians. And the interesting thing about this king is, is that he allowed, he allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild their city and rebuild the temple. That's what Ezra, Nehemiah is about. And that's what the prophets Haggai and Habakkuk are about. They're about this post-exilic event where Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed Israel to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. That's what he's prophesying here years before it ever happened. Now, the amazing thing about this is in verse 28, it, let's write this down in your notepad, in your note sheet because I want you to write it down look it up. He called Cyrus a shepherd and an anointed one. Now the word shepherd is used in the Old Testament of God in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11. It is used of Messiah in Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 23. Write those down, look them up. And it is used of Israel's kings in Jeremiah 3.15. But nowhere does the word shepherd, is the word shepherd ever applied to a pagan king. Nowhere. The word anointed was used of priests in Leviticus chapter 4 verse 3. It's used of Israel's kings in 1 Samuel chapter 24 verse 6. And it's used of the patriarchs in Psalm 105, verse 15. But primarily, the word anointed was a word applied to the Redeemer, to Messiah. Now, here's what Isaiah is saying God speaking through the prophet, and he's saying this I am using Cyrus, this pagan king that, has, that does not know me, totally pagan, and he will be used like a the Messiah, like Redeemer, He'll be used like a king of Israel. Now, there are two practical truths in all that. Watch this. The first practical truth is, is that God is the God of every nation and every king. He's the sovereign of all kings, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's hard for us to, to, to imagine this in our mind but, you know, um, he's the ruler of all the rulers, and 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 God has control of every nation and every king in every nation, as the sovereign God. Now, you, when you pick up your newspaper in the morning and you read about these uh, pagan kings, these pagan rulers, pagan dictators, it's hard to visualize the fact that God is the God of these men. Now, if I'm in exile in in Babylon and I've got these wicked kings, these pagan kings ruling over me, it's going to give me a whole lot of hope to know that God is the God of these men. All right? Second, and here's the great clincher, is that sometimes God works in mysterious ways to accomplish His purpose. And He works in ways that we would never dream of Him working. Now who would have ever thought that Cyrus, a pagan, would be a shepherd of God or, a, or the anointed of God? But don't, you know, sell God too short because God can, will, can and does use situations, events, and people to accomplish His purpose that we would never dream He would do. Some of you might be going through some experiences in your life right now and you would call those experiences the worst time of your life. It may turn out to be the best time. And sometimes he uses failure, sometimes he uses loss, and sometimes he uses illness. But God works in mysterious ways His wonders to perform and even Cyrus is an instrument in His hand and God uses the unusual things to accomplish His purpose. Instruments. Number three is the invitation. Now the invitation is found in chapter 45 verse 22 and 3. Look at this. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. Turn to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Sounds familiar, every knee will bow and every tongue will call him Lord. Well, let me ask you this. Suppose you were picking up a history book and you were reading that God was going to rescue Israel from Babylon. What would be the purpose? What what do you think would be the purpose of the re, or the result? of Israel's being resurrected and and rescued from Babylonian captivity so that Israel could go back to Jerusalem, rebuild her temple, rebuild her walls, or city and reconstruct her nation? No. The reason why God redeems anyone is that that person's knee would bow to Him and his tongue would confess allegiance to him. For whatever God is doing in a person's life, the end result of what he's doing in that person's life is that that person would come to a bent knee mode and a confessing allegiance. What God wants of your life is that you surrender to him. Now notice three things about the invitation. The invitation is extended to the ends of the earth. Verse 22, look unto me, he says, all the ends of the earth. Because the invitation is to every person. In a couple of weeks we're going to be uh, uh, involved in the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. About once a year we we begin to think about the fact that, that every person on planet Earth um, it has an opportunity to be saved. Now that's not hard for us to you know, grasp with our minds. We, we believe that the gospel is for everybody. The Jews didn't believe that. And most of, most of us really don't believe that. Our concept of of Jesus Christ is that, you know, somebody said, you know, that our idea of Jesus is that He was born in a middle income community in an Anglo-Saxon Baptist congregation, you know, a church. Uh, It's hard for us to really get down in our gut that Jesus is the Jesus for every person. And that, that guy on the other side of the planet needs to know Him just like we need to know Him. Second, the substance of the invitation. Here's the substance of the invitation. Look to me and be saved. These, uh, let me give you a little preview of what's going to happen in His invitation. These precious young ladies, two of them are sitting here on the front pew. They're on the front row because they don't want to have to walk that way down the aisle. They're coming tonight at the end of the service. We we met this afternoon. Adorable young people. And we talked about what is it? How do you? What is the difference between being saved, being baptized? And how does a person get saved? And it's it's good news to say that you know that the way you get saved is just by looking to Jesus. Now. It's not that difficult. It's not a matter of uh, you know earning your you know merits or or uh, being uh, a, a, a member of a certain race or whatever. It's just looking to Jesus. Twenty times in the book of Isaiah, he uses the word "saved," and every time he uses the same Hebrew, Hebrew word that means to be liberated from confinement. Because there is a bondage that is greater than any bondage in any refugee camp, and that's the bondage of sin. Look unto me, said, and get freedom from sin. And then there is the the surety of the salvation in verse 23 where he says I have sworn by my name and what he means by that is that that I'm 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 basing your deliverance and your salvation upon my integrity upon my integrity you believe in the security of the believer I mean how do you how do you know that your salvation is secure well Because of His integrity. Let me ask you this. On what does the security of your salvation rest? On your integrity or on His? God said, I'm going to save you, deliver you when you look to me and I've sworn by my name you can rest on the integrity of my word. Okay. Now there is one last thing and that's the insistence. And that's found in chapter 48, verses 17 and 20. Read with me. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Verse 20, Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, Declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the end of the earth. The insistence is this, go forth from Babylon. Now, guy gets this message and he's over here in slave camp and, and he says, Get, you know, leave Babylon. Now what he's talking about, watch this, the emphasis is not on the chronology of their separation but on the character of their separation. The emphasis is is here that a person who looks to Him for salvation is to make an absolute break from the world. The emphasis is not on the chronology but on the character. For when a person is delivered, redeemed from his sin, he must be willing to separate from the world to be fully consecrated to God. For it is not just being saved from bondage, but to God. Now, when a person, you know, when we invite a person to give his heart or her heart and life to Jesus Christ, it's the invitation for one to break with the past and commit his or her life to Jesus Christ. That's the insistence. And God stands for nothing less. He demands nothing more and he accepts nothing less than absolute separation from the world and absolute consecration to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you. For the deliverance that's in Christ, and for our look unto Him for our salvation, we give thanks for the liberating message of the gospel, and that You are a God adequate and sufficient for every need. We pray for this moment of invitation that You'll be glorified. For I ask in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations I invite you to come tonight, perhaps to professing your faith publicly in Christ, come for baptism, church membership, rededication of your life. While we stand to sing we invite you to come.